Uh, good morning, and thank you for being here. Is the mic okay? Is about right? Okay. I think it's great to be following uh, Richard. He talked about the evangelicals' obligation and where do we go from here. I believe uh, evangelicals as well as Christians of other backgrounds, I think it will perhaps come out in my talk. I'm of a Lutheran persuasion. I think one of the things that we're missing is a real strong commitment to apologetics. I also think that in my presentation it will come out that a lot of my thought has developed over time, particularly influenced by four summers that I spent at the Academy of Apologetics and Human Rights in Strasbourg under the tutelage of John Warwick Montgomery and people like uh, Dr. John Blount, who is uh, sitting in, in the room with us. So uh, my thought development uh, depends a lot on my exposure to, to that area. So with that, I would like to begin. I don't have a PowerPoint. I thought this is just more of a, of a lecture than a presentation of data or anything. Secular, materialistic, technology all describe America, but so do Christian, conservationist, and environmentalism. Although science and Christianity can be seen as enemies, Christians can integrate faith and science in environmental policy making. A few years ago, I took students to a Leopold Education Project workshop. LEP's mission is to, quote, create an ecologically literate citizenry so that each individual might develop a personal land ethic. The facilitator asked how to teach children to care for nature. No one responded. Eventually, one of my students said, teachers could ask students what their God, whether Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or any other higher spiritual power wanted them to do. The leader said, oh, teachers can't bring God into schools. No one responded. My student eventually said, if we can't mention God, how can we teach anything about morality or ethics? The leader simply said we had to move on in the interest of time. We must avoid this response if we want students to be informed citizens and if we want our elected and appointed officials to support moral environmental policy. Environmentalists must first define and justify an environmental ethic. However, some Christians philosophically separate faith and science. Others are suspicious of human rights and environmentalism. They associate international organizations with the Antichrist or believe legislation focuses on a social gospel rather than salvation. Some dispensational premillennialists think the world must be destroyed. Thus, Christians who could proclaim a biblical base for environmental policies do not do so. In 2008, I attended the God's Green Kingdom track at the InterVarsity Following Christ Conference. It was chaired by Rusty Pritchard. Some of you may know him. Its objective was, quote, to deepen an integrated biblical, scholarly, and practical approach to challenges and opportunities facing humans to live as sanctified citizens in God's green kingdom. We discussed if environmentalism has positive or negative connotations. Consensus was negative. It is a lost opportunity for the environment and evangelism when professionals in science, resource, and wildlife management, engineering, architecture, business, education, and public policy mistrust environmentalism. Environmentalists must establish sound policies and justify an ethic. The latter should precede the former, 
but given the nature of many problems, practical policies have been implemented while ignoring philosophy and theology. The environmental rights movement, which grew following the post-World War II technological explosion, should learn from the human rights movement that grew after that same war's brutality. Establishing environmental policy is a biblical duty transcending personal preference. However, rights must not be confused with wants or needs. Invoking animal rights or reproductive rights carries more weight than stating opinions, but legal rights depend on contracts. Your need for clothing does not equate with a right to the coat in my closet. Equating rights with needs is a philosophical error because fallible humans don't always know what they need or what is in their own best interest. The interest theory of rights defines a right as an interest protected by an external norm without need to claim the right. Children, animals, fetuses, or the environment can have rights. This is not so with the will theory of rights, which requires making a claim. A right for one person creates a legal duty for another person or group. Since rights are entitlements obligating someone else, the title giver's identity must be established. Infallible rights must be given by God, not man. By extension, then, the rights of creation or the land ethic correlates with biblical duty. For millennia, ethics focused on human relationships. Environmental ethics developed in the 70s as philosophers explored man's relationship with the natural world, both biotic and abiotic, apart from man. Our relationship with nature can be defined in many ways, but justification for each depends on logic or preference. Pragmatists might appear, appeal to utilitarian values for human survival, uh, artists to beauty, moralist to uh, some external ethical code. Deep ecologists argue that non-rational organisms deserve more protection than humans because they merely carry out life functions and are innocent of degradation based on moral choices. People are the lowest on the moral order because they can reason but have degraded nature by their poor choices. Thus, for deep ecologists, human life is inconsequential when compared to the biosphere. In 1949, Aldo Leopold proposed the land ethic, which states that non-human species, ecosystems, and the land itself have intrinsic rights to unspoiled existence. But Leopold assigned these rights a priori to nature. Although appealing, the land ethic is founded on human reason. Unless it can be justified on universal grounds, people are free to choose a different ethic. Why is one ethic more moral than another? The only way one ethic can be best is if it can be shown to conform to an absolute ethic not affirmed by human reason or preference. An atheist might argue that since competition and the struggle for survival defines success, organisms are free to use unlimited resources. Does an organism that has evolved without purpose through blind forces or by chance alone have an ethical responsibility to other organisms or to consider the needs of those weaker than itself? Leopold himself wrote, an ethic ecologically is a limitation on freedom of action and the struggle for existence. If universalists are wrong, no fundamental eternal principles exist. Thus, relativists who argue that moral decisions and values depend on personal situations or cultural context are correct. If so, an environmental ethic is merely contextual. Who or what determines in which context it is acceptable to degrade the environment? 
If nihilists are correct that existence is meaningless, what difference does it make if humans are environmental stewards? Life is a struggle for existence in a bleak world without truth, goodness, or beauty. If utilitarians are correct, whatever produces the greatest good for the greatest number is ethical. Purely utilitarian ethics easily devolve into hedonism. Bentham concluded pleasure is the ultimate standard for establishing goodness and in actions rightness. Mill said the greatest pleasure is intellectual. Do you want me to hold this? So their greatest good is to become educated, to live as an enlightened humanitarian. Influenced by Mill, pioneering conservationists such as March and Pinchot developed a conservation ethic. Resources must be managed to yield the greatest good for the greatest number for the longest time. Postmodernism denies nature has a single definitive meaning. Individuals can construct nature to mean whatever they want. How can nature have rights if it's only a cultural or a contextual construct. Recognizing that we should care for God's world, many Christians have embraced creation care. But typically, they begin with scripture to argue that humans have a duty to live sustainably by a biblical ethic. Theocentric approaches stress duty as recorded in God's instructions to uh, to Adam. As tenants made in God's image, we have a special responsibility for the land. Anthropocentric approaches stress biblical justice modeled on God as Israel's deliverer and Christ's teachings to deliver our neighbors from suffering. Biocentric approaches vary considerably, but agree that all life and the biosphere have intrinsic value. Biocentric approaches often can be a syncretism between Christianity and things such as New Age spirituality, Eastern religions, pantheism, ecofeminism, or animal liberation. Gushi in 2010, proposed a sanctity of human life ethic that avoids such extremes. Uh, This very April, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, of which I'm a member, adopted Together with All Creatures, Caring for God's Living Earth, which stresses that we share a common creatureliness with all life, but bear a unique dignity and responsibility as we anticipate Christ's new creation. Its goal is to help churches integrate care of creation into worship, stewardship, evangelism, and community service. Although many Christians support creation care, agreement begs the question of whether biblical stewardship is more valid than other human-derived policy. Unless scripture is true, creation care is just one potentially valid choice. If scripture is true, an environmental ethic based on it does become authoritative. If not, we are left with no moral grounds to guide environmental policy making. Moral relativism will trump any ethic, including an environmental ethic, developed solely through human reason, no matter how logical it seems to the majority. One must establish an absolute authority for granting rights to nature or humans. Environmentalism addresses the protection of land and non-human species and the establishment of just policies among peoples with regard to resources. Ideally, these should be linked by an all-encompassing ethic guiding moral agents. What is a moral agent? A moral agent must be capable of choosing to act morally or immorally, have the means and autonomy to do so, and be responsible for the consequences. Most agree only humans can be moral agents, but not all humans are able to do so. For example, babies are severely disabled uh, mentally adults. Although some societies saw humans not as moral agents, uh, uh, excuse me, not as moral subjects, but as property, most people to, uh, today agree that all humans are moral subjects 
who deserve moral treatment. Animals are not moral agents, but are they moral subjects? Do they and the land have a right to be treated morally by moral agents? How is intrinsic or conferred value assigned to non-human or non-living things? Affirming that all not organisms have intrinsic value and rights apart from conferred value is inherent in the land ethic. Leopold said, and I quote, of the 22,000 higher plants and animals native to Wisconsin, it is doubtful whether more than 5% can be sold, fed, eaten, or otherwise put to economic use. Yet these creatures are members of the land community and they are entitled to continuance. He concluded, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it intends otherwise. But the land ethic raises the question, to what extent, if any, should human rights be extended to other things? To answer, consider how human rights are derived. Natural law and legal positivism are the classic ways of defining them. Unfortunately, neither works. Natural law assumes humans inherently recognize human rights, contributing to the common good. Western tradition argued natural law is biblical because God implanted knowledge of human rights into our hearts. But post-enlightenment natural law replaced the God of revelation with deism. Therefore, natural law was universally self-evident and God became unnecessary. Natural law has three difficulties. First, rights arising from it are ambiguous. Montgomery paraphrases the 6th century Justinian law code as live honestly, harm no one, give to each his own. But Buchenwald's slogan was each man gets what he deserves. Natural law therefore depends on context. Second, natural law theory commits the naturalistic fallacy. It is not logical to argue from what is to what ought to be. Third, consensus is absent. Native Americans lacked a concept of land ownership, but American law covers property rights. In the 19th century, legal positivists argued that government or a sovereign establishes human rights, so law is whatever the state or ruler says. This solves natural law's ambiguity, but lacks standards to judge a law's morality. Nuremberg trials illustrate the problem. Some analysts argue that the trials, seeking to eliminate the defense that individuals were not criminally responsible when performing state-ordered actions, were illegal because one system forced its values on another. Jackson, chief U.S. prosecutor, attacked national sovereign immunity because atrocities followed natural law, followed Nazi law. In prosecuting individuals for crimes against humanity, Jackson appealed to an international higher law which he successfully argued Nazi officials violated. Although some trace the international human rights movement to Jackson's success, others argue in the spirit of legal positivism that the trials were simply victor's justice. Disagreement over Nuremberg highlights legal difficulties associated with establishing law and justice. International human rights must move beyond natural law, but the challenge is to identify principles that transcend human logic. Legal positivism allows a system to do whatever it wants with regards to human rights and therefore, by extension, to use or abuse of Earth's resources, non-human species, and the land itself. Neither natural law nor legal positivism is sufficient to develop ethics because an ethical system requires a perspective does not, that does not arise from within it but stands outside of it. As long as laws or ethics arise from human sources, they will be fallible, contaminated by culture, and time. Without God, there is no absolute ethic for either human or environmental rights. Human reasoning is faulty and cannot be authoritative. 
Therefore, ethics, including human rights and environmental ethics, must be revealed. Many religious truth claims exist, so one must determine which, if any, is true. Of all world religions, only Christianity is based on an event that happened in history, the discovery of Jesus' empty tomb, rather than on the te- uh, founder's teachings. This event can be examined with the same methods historians use to determine the probability that other events in ancient history happened. Gospel accounts can be evaluated by the same test used to determine the reliability of other ancient documents. If the Gospels are reliable historical documents, then we have a revelation on which to establish all ethics. Montgomery's evidential legal apologetic is uniquely suited to demonstrate within reason that scripture is true and that mankind has been blessed with a transcendent revealed ethic. Validating the Gospels the same way secular uh, secular documents are validated concludes that the New Testament is sound on historical and legal grounds. Once the resurrection is established as a historical event, it becomes obvious that a great miracle occurred. Jesus claimed to be God and said he would rise from the dead to prove his claim. Since Jesus demonstrated that he is God by his resurrection, his view of scripture validates biblical authority. Philosophical and scientific arguments become secondary to a legal historical apologetic. An evidential legal apologetic is therefore creation care's missing link, if you will, because it avoids assuming a priori the biblical mandate to care for creation. Many believe religion and science should not interfere with each other. Gould was unable to, quote, see how science and religion could be unified or even synthesized under any common scheme. He wrote, science tries to document the factual character of the natural world. Religion, on the other hand, operates in the realm of human purposes, meanings, and values. Believing that science, but not religion, is founded on fact, Gould proposed the principle of non-overlapping magisteria, assigning the realm of fact to science and the moral realm to religion. He asked, again I quote, Are we worth more than bugs or bacteria because we have evolved more complex neurology? Under what conditions, if ever, do we have a right to drive other species to extinction? He recognized science cannot answer these questions and concluded we must turn to religion. However, the most he hoped for was that discussion would be, quote, a quest for consensus or at least a clarification of assumptions and criteria about ethical ought rather than a search for any factual is about the natural world, end quote. However, there is no way to determine if consensus is true unless it can be measured against an external authority, as I have shown. Regardless of what science tells us, if NOMA is valid, there are no factual moral grounds for environmental ethics. Common sense is not self-evident. Intuition is insufficient to determine truth. Appeals to authority beg the question of how to identify the correct authority, but absolute authority must measure the truthfulness of secular authority. Since religion cannot be divorced from ethics, faith and science overlap in environmental policy making. NOMA fails to recognize that Christianity is unique among religions because it is founded on fact, the discovery of Jesus' empty tomb, which can be investigated like other historical events. That facticity gives us a moral basis for environmental policy making. Even atheist Dawkins understood that religion interfaces with science in the physical world. He wrote, the existence of God is a scientific hypothesis like any other. He also wrote, and I quote, A universe with a supernatural presence would be a fundamentally and qualitatively different kind of universe from one without. The difference is inescapably a scientific difference. 
Religions make existence claims, and this means scientific claims. There is something dishonestly self-serving in the tactic of claiming that all religious beliefs are outside the domain of science. End quote. When environmental policymaking is purely utilitarian, responding to crisis after crisis, but without justifying a revealed ethic for establishing policy, public support will be fickle. Once a crisis is solved, interest will wane until a new crisis is identified and publicized or a new administration is elected. Creation care is biblical duty, but coupled with an apologetic defending biblical authority is a permanent motivation for Christians to be involved with both environmental policymaking and evangelism. In contrast to Christians who begin a priori with scripture, we should offer an apologetic which examines the historicity of Jesus' resurrection by normative, legal, and historical methods. Christian support for environmental policies should not be crisis-driven, but exist because it is evangelistic and glorifies God. Therefore, I humbly suggest that faith and science together are the best and arguably the only basis for ethical and sound environmental policymaking. Thank you.